You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow Cookie to Range, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and a series of guests. And today I'm joined by an old florist friend of mine called Anna Potter. And I'm sure lots of you know about Anna already from Swallows and Damsons in Sheffield. I feel she was one of the sort of first florists who really used Instagram as a way of, of getting her name out there but also taught us a whole new... I really feel she did lead the way with a sort of muted, beautiful, coppery, what I call brandesnap palette. And I've certainly been hugely inspired by Anna, who's been here to teach a few times at Perch Hill. And the reason that I've invited her back on the podcast today is because she's got a new book out, which is so exciting, which is called Flower Philosophy, And it's actually out next week, so it's incredibly topical. And I'm afraid for that reason, I'm going to take a sidestep out of the 12 best series that we're doing all the way through the beginning of the year this year. Because to be honest, this fabulous book just doesn't fit that format exactly. So it would be like trying to shoehorn something very, very beautiful into rather a rigid structure and it just doesn't fit. So welcome, Anna. It's so lovely to have you back on the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me back, Sarah, and for that absolutely lovely introduction and sidestep away from your programming for the book. That's so kind of you. No, not at all. Well, I um, will. Will you just tell those that perhaps didn't hear you last time and don't know of you already, in a way, what differentiates you as a florist? I mean, I've sort of given a little bit of background there about your palettes, but also. This whole book is very much about nature, which is why it feels so dear to me because I've always been a florist or a flower person who loves nature. And I would love you to just talk a little bit and introduce us to the whole idea of where you've moved to in a way since your first book. Yes, absolutely. So I would say that this, um, the next book, Flower Philosophy, is an extension of my own floral journey. So where a progression of where I've sort of got to over time, like the flower fix, and like I've done previously, I'm going to, I've been doing seasonal projects that people can create in the book. But as I've um, progressed in my own journey, I've gone for more of a sort of mindful angle, including more, more of a natural feel, because I'd say my, my style has always been very natural. But now, it's less about the end product yes. and more about the process of creating. So it's bringing in all diff- a wealth of different things from nature, not just your flower shop flowers or your normal blooms, and bringing in foliage and anything that you can find outside, branches, leaves that you find on the ground, you know, mm. all different bits and bobs, and bringing those in so it creates meaning and that you can reflect on different flowers and different things at different parts of their life cycle yeah. and how what that means to you too. So it's um, they're a bit more meditative, the projects, as opposed to creating for a photograph or yes. for a product. 
it's more sustainable basically but I mean it's it's a lot more than that as well yeah. but yes definitely and um obviously working seasonally and large projects small projects and everything in between mm. there's I feel like hopefully there's something that everyone can take from from those projects and from that book yeah I suppose if I was to um, distill it down to one phrase, which is, I don't know, I, I would say is it feels not that your the flaffix felt like this at all, but I, it, it feels very much, as you've said, sort of more mindful and less showy-offy. I mean, not that you were a showy-offy florist, but it's, <laughs> it's very much kind of use what you have. It's as beautiful as some expensive bloom as as you say it's kind of it's more not not minimal because it's the flowers aren't in the book aren't minimal they're really truly truly beautiful and we'll we'll come on to them and some of the projects in a minute but I suppose it just does feel that much more if you've got a garden out there or you've got somebody that you can ask whether you can pick from a an, a local farmer or whatever from the hedges and it's yeah. very much using that absolutely front and center to the arrangements rather than like the prize chrysanthemum or the or the prize tulip or the or the prize uh, you know rose or whatever yeah i'm hoping that people will if if they read the book and they start to arrange themselves and take inspiration from some of the projects what what i'd hope for them to take would be more of a that it meets them wherever they're at yeah so that if you're feeling mel- melancholy if you're if you're feeling you know sad if you're feeling joyful if you you know that you'll be able to use the flowers or the scraps or the foliage that really reflect that in a sort of almost like a therapy kind of process of creating yes yes so spend time in it i mean i love this quote actually that I marked when I read the book, which is, this was at the end of winter, which is like, this is going out at the beginning of February. So this is very relevant to now. So you said, I began writing in a frosty January garden, actually it was this, but I mean, so let's say early February, three blankets, two jumpers and one hot water bottle thick with a fire and a chai close by being dipped on as the flames beside me thawed the ice overhead. Sorry, dripped, not dipped. (laughs) It felt necessary to be right there in that moment listening. And so what you're sort of saying is the arrangements come out of that experience rather than just existing for themselves, I guess. Yes, that's it. And being led, being led by what's around, being led by whatever's growing, whatever the weather's doing, whatever's going on in your life. Yeah. that it can all add to this sense of connecting with nature and creativity. Yeah. And in a way, more like a painting, maybe. I mean, you know, as a, as a an artist where it's more permanent, the, f- the problem with a flower arrangement is, of course, it's such a transient thing, isn't it? I wouldn't say it was a problem. No, I'd say it's it a was good a, thing. A, a, a good thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. <laughs> okay. So I would love us to talk about some of the flowers and some of the projects that you've put in the book. And funnily enough, for spring, the one that really made my heart sing is actually the one right at the front of the book, which is which is a spring wreath. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I remember actually, I wrote my cutting garden book nearly 30 years ago now. And I remember doing something sort of rather similar using things from the garden here, sort of hellebores and and blackthorn, prunus spinosus and stuff. 
but it's nothing like as beautiful as yours because you're just <laughs> as a florist is you are just supremely talented and so i just wondered if you'd you'd talk us through that project i just think it's just so wonderful and telling us how you would make a spring wreath but also then what you might put into it in the next few weeks you know as we go through from february into march etc Definitely. That the, the wreath that I made for the book was actually, it was inspired by one that I'd made during the first lockdown when I had nothing available to me from the flower market. Yeah. Everything had closed down. I was limited of choice. My normal go-tos had all been taken away. The ease of just, you know, pressing a button or going to the market and buying something had all gone. So yeah. And and I actually, this is one of, I talk about this bit in the book, that is, I recommend that sort of forced, yes. <laughs> if you can, that, that forced limitation, yes. because that's where you really, you have to think outside of the box. If you want to create, then you have to look elsewhere. And um, that's, I think, where often for me, certainly magic happens, yeah. where I'm, you have to look deeper or more carefully at what's available so that that was the inspiration so I made one um just by going out on walks and really paying attention to what was happening in hedgerows in overgrown areas and in the garden itself as well so never before had I used things like laurel blossom Mm. or I'd never even used the willow the fluffy yellow willow catkins and blackthorn as well, which yeah. just absolutely is the most precious little blossom. Yeah. And vicious, obviously. It is. But, uh, <laughs> but that adds to it as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so it was it was a real process of opening my eyes to what was available at yes. that time as opposed to just simply going and buying things from flower shops I shouldn't probably shouldn't be promoting the (laughs) non-buying things from flower flower shops shops. (laughs) (laughs) I have to watch myself so that's where and obviously forsythia and hellebores yes hellebores from the garden and I have to say because I imagine that some people will be looking at it and thinking that's not gonna last one hot minute Yes. And it and it doesn't last a particularly long time. It's not one of these reeds that you make and it dries out beautifully and yeah. Often people come into the shop and tell us that their Christmas reeds that we've made have dried and they've had them for 2 years and things like that. And yeah. um, it's it, that is not the case with this and not really the purpose no. that I had in mind for creating it. It is a celebration of all the new growth and um, what can be found yeah. out in what seems a cold, stark yes, um, moment part of the year. Of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, in terms of construction, you literally, you explain in the book how you just get a normal copper wreath base, you cover it in moss, yeah. you use the real wire. Shane Connolly would say you should only only use a wooden wreath base and yeah. string twine because it's biodegradable. <laughs> well, I agree. I agree with him, to be fair. <laughs> and then on you go adding bunch by bunch. So a little tiny hand tie bunch gets added at sort of 12 o'clock and then you add the next one at 10.30 yeah. and then the next one round, round, round covering the stems that 
that were on the previous bunch until you finish back at at sort of one o'clock and so you've got a full a total uh, circle of flowers and I couldn't more recommend getting the book just for the beauty of this picture it's it's the most wondrous uh, early late winter early spring celebration and for a party or you know with the um if you were to mist the flowers and then yeah. put them out on the doorstep when you went to bed I think it would last a few days at least Yes, it it sh- it should do. It should do. I think there's somewhere else in the book. I'm not sure it's on the same. I think it's in the spring introduction. There's a picture of a snail. Yes, there um, is. Hang- yeah. Hanging on for dear life onto that wreath as well. <laughs> yeah, there is. it made it made its way in. My uh, token snail. There's got to be one in every uh, I know. in every book. I remember when you were teaching <laughs> here a couple of years ago. You and Becky Crowley went out for look, looking for snails. So they had to be yeah. in all the still life pictures. There's, there's That's snails. right. <laughs> Too right. <laughs> so the next thing I wanted to highlight is is the next flower, really, in terms of the spring season, which is the daffodil. And I was so cheered by reading your section on this because I'm a massive Narcissus enthusiast. <laughs> And I love tulips too, don't get me wrong, as do you. But uh, I feel that the DAF has been incredibly overlooked by people in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about them is that they are so incredibly perennial. And I holiday on the west coast of Scotland where there are some bulbs that have been flowering that we think were planted in 1870 sort of thing. And they still flower. Wow. Yeah. And they're the most amazing. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. Um, it's the Poeticus variety called Alba Plana. So it's double. And it's incredibly yeah. perfumed and it flowers really late in May. And so in Scotland, the, all the hills are covered in bluebells. And then you just get these white tussocks of incredibly fragrant narcissus. And they were planted by the Victorians. So, you know, I'm crazy about daffs for that, for that amongst many reasons. But tell us why you've become so keen on, on daffs. It's the nostalgia, I think, for me that's related, that they remind me of, I think, in terms of that stability of them being there every year, year after year. Yeah. You can mark, like you said, about how they just they come back and how reliant they are. And I yeah. think when you can mark your your life as such but memories to those things that come back year after year like that yes then that creates so much nostalgia around them and um I have so many so many childhood memories of and of daffodils and when I, I when I say daffodils I only really think of the yellow the bright yellow classic daffodil yeah and everything else to me is narcissus but they are daffodils. Yes, yes, and, um, yeah. And, you know, I yeah, memories of um, the garden when I was younger, yeah. of my nana. Nana loved daffodils. Yeah, because they break spring, don't they? It's like, I mean, they're, they're they like, do. here we are. They're in flower and, and spring has started. And so it's like we can all crawl out from our hibernation in a way. Yeah. And I think it's it really has only been in, well, the sort of last four or five years that I've really... I don't know whether it's just been new to me or whether they have made their way more into the forefront of fashionable floristry. Yeah. But um, that I've been aware of how many varieties there are. Yeah, no, there's been huge breeding. Unusual yeah. varieties and the peaches and the apricots and salmon tones, which, you know, yeah. I've, I've always veer towards anyway. They're gorgeous and they last, you know, they last 
such a long time too. Yeah, I know. People think they don't, but they the new varieties yeah. really do last. And they actually, a lot of varieties dry out beautifully, mm. oh. which feels like quite a surprise. Like they shouldn't with such a sort of, because there's so much moisture in them. Yes, juicy. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good word for them. But no, you can you can actually dry out daffodils, and they. One of the things, because when I do mate reeds, especially like a spring reed, I will just leave it uh, once it's sort of bloomed and looks beautiful. Because I'm an absolute terror for tidying up after myself, I will just kind of discard it to one side and leave it for a while, and then uh, I think, oh, I should do something with that wreath, and I'll come back to it. And actually, you'll be surprised how many things. How many fragile spring blooms dry out really, really lovely? Oh God, I didn't know that. That's so interesting. And and it now I think might be the moment just to talk about your photographer in the book, because yes, you mention her in the back, India Hobson. Yes, but you talk about her quite a bit, and your just your sort of chats as you're in a photo shoot or whatever. So tell us a little bit about her. I've been working with India for it must be about. 10 years now and um, wow. she's local she lives um, in Sheffield um, and she is she's such a magnificent photographer in the details that she sees mm. I can see the that. light mm. the light shadow and I, I know a lot of photography is all about light and shadow but it is um it's remarkable whenever I receive a batch of photographs back from India I'm always blown away because I think so often you see things with your eyes and you never expect it to ever look how you how you see it with your eyes and it's not that it does look exactly like that but it captures an essence that is just yeah the atmosphere is the atmosphere yeah yeah and um I think because we've known each other for such a long time and worked together for a long time that the the ease of work, it, well, I think I say it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. It feels like a conversation yeah. creating within a conversation. Yes, and, exactly. um, yeah. And I talk a lot about our process and because I feel like she is so much of a part of yes. what influences what I make because of that conversation, I think. so. Yes, yes. And all natural light, I guess, and nothing done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I quite often poor India, I do um I do present her with some challenging situations. <laughs> she is often she, I can't remember what she said to me. I think the I one in the could, wardrobe. Oh. I can imagine that thing. I'm like, <laughs> right, okay. So we're going to do shoot a flower arrangement in a wardrobe. <laughs> she um I think when we were making the book, she she actually said she said to me, Ah, she was like Anna Potter, big ideas, little preparation. I was like, oh. <laughs> that sounds <Okay>. like <laughs> the best of people, I would say. <laughs> By the skin of your pants. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on to tulips, they're, they're one of the things that I know because you've been here to teach in, in tulip time. And um, yes. normally through the book, you don't give variety recommendations because it's more – you want people to go with the flow, but I did notice yes. with tulips that you do actually cite La Belle Epoque and brownie and um, and brown sugar and 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 actually various varieties. But I love the way 
which of course we're moving now from March into April and May, and you differentiate between them and the Narcissus uh, calling tulips, these wild spirited dancers. And I love that phrase. And I wonder if you just chat about that and how you can use that in floristry. Yes. So I've always actually had a conflict in my whole floristry journey from when I first started off in the flower shop, learning on the job, we'd get tulips into the shop and all the other florists and even customers, it would all be about how to keep these tulips straight. Yes. So uh, tricks on how to keep them straight. Oh no, you know, this one's gone AWOL, that one's gone wild, that's no good, that's got a bend in it. And I don't think I realised what what it was at the time, but I felt a real conflict in that. I was like, what are we doing here? Why yeah. are we putting pennies in the water? Why are we pinpricking them? Yeah. What's um tying them tightly and all these all these different tricks and tips in order to keep them contained and straight. Yes. And that is something that I still in the shop come up against. And and it's true, it is tricky to put them into a hand-tied bouquet with other flowers because they're going to grow and they're going to reach up to the sky and they're going to bend and they're going to change. So you make a bouquet and you can guarantee the next day it will not look like that. Yeah. So for that purpose, I think I have really lent into that yeah. idea that this is what's going to happen. This is what they want to do. They want to break free from whatever you try and constrict them to. They want to bend. They want to wiggle around. And how we can play with that and use that in an arrangement and create movement. Yes. And and that's why I, I think why I call it a dance because yeah. – you know, it moves. It moves. You create something and you'll go back an hour later and d- it will have changed. <laughs> and, and so you want you to know. celebrate that. Exactly, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and the other thing that I, re- I very much remember here, and I, I read this in the, in the book too, which is you take off the majority of the leaves in order to focus on the flower and not busy yeah. up the arrangement with too much green. And I remember you saying that here, that you basically didn't really want very much green at all in your arrangements. And I find that's really interesting. Yeah, I do that with a lot of flowers, not just the tulips, but the tulips in particular, because there is so much foliage on them often, and it is quite a big, a big leaf. Yes. And I think when you're, when the stem has such a delicate twist or bend and you want to show that off yeah removing the leaves really adds to adds to it I think sometimes just it can um wash out the color combinations too yeah maybe not wash out but you're you're adding another color Yeah. yeah so if you you know if you want to create something that's quite rich in color and in a warm color spectrum for example so in your rusts um apricots deep reds then actually if you throw too much green into that mix it's going to yeah it's going to take away the impact yeah yeah no I totally get that so if we're talking about them perhaps for April 
you know, from March into April with the narcissus and then the tulips. Then I'd love us to move on now to magnolias. And the other thing you talk about a lot in the book and seem to use a lot is one of my very favorite shrubs, which is an amelanchia. And I just would love to hear from you why. I mean, obviously, we kind of know why we love magnolias, but I'd love you to talk about that. But but also why you love the amelanchia. The amelanchia is one of my favorite shrubs too. Mm. And we have, I have a beautiful mature one in the garden. And again, it, I, I actually, um, in, in my, um, when I'm writing, cause to, to write the books, because they're seasonal, I, um, I try and keep, it's not a diary as such, mm. but reflections over what's happening in the garden and yeah. what's happening in each season over the course of years. So I refer back to those when I'm writing the projects and the books. Yeah. And the progression of the Amalankia is something that comes up all the time in what I'm writing. So whether I, the, the way the colour changes over the course of a month yeah. as it sort of swells and the leaves start to um, come out, I, there's so many reflections on real stormy, dark skies yes. and then this... I, it's it's difficult to describe the color because it's not like a normal blossom tree because it's got that dark leaf. Yeah. So yeah, I have I have a real love for it. Yeah, I agree. And then the colors in the autumn are just incredible, aren't they? I think the amelanchia yeah. is for a small garden. I mean, hydrangeas are just absolutely incredible, um, particularly the more sort of delicate varieties that are coming out at the moment. But I think amelanchia would be my number one plant. For planting in a, yes. in a small garden, for sure. And do you know, I I thought I knew quite a lot about edible flowers, but I did not know that magnolia petals were edible. Oh, Sarah, you, you have to try them. It's just brilliant. I didn't know that. They are otherworldly. I, I, and it is has only been the last couple of years. I've always loved magnolias because they are majestic. And yeah. they, for me, I think I talked about sort of wisdom, but I think they're one of the oldest... The most ancient flowering plant species. Yeah. Um, I know. I I didn't know that either. I just think they give that vibe. Yeah. They give, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm, I know more than you. I am. <laughs> they've got like such a wise character to them. And um, I love them. And then, yes, I found out too that they were edible. And the taste is, it's like a very sweet floral ginger. Incredible. And just you can just nibble the petal straight from the tree. Wow. Or you can pickle them. And um I did that this year in rice wine vinegar yeah. and a bit of sugar. Yeah. And I guess it's like pickled ginger, but yeah. but also has a, a very sweet floral taste to it too, which it's it's brilliant. And you can have them in salads. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so looking forward to magnolias coming into <laughs> Just to try them. Um, and, and then obviously the other big glamour plant for May going into June, and you talk about that, you talk about that being an important reason that you love them, is the peony. And yes. so, I mean, there's the most beautiful, beautiful hand-tied bouquet that you do as that, sort of, as you say, as the turn of spring into summer with things like lilac, which flower at exactly that moment. And the end of the tulips and the end of the ranunculus and and that very bright spirea, that very, very bright acid leaf. 
and current and things yeah. like that. But then the sort of crowning glory of this incredibly, exquisitely beautiful hand-tied bunch is a, a wonderful, wonderful peony. So, I mean, we all we all know in a way that we all love peonies, but just talk a little bit about your passion for peonies. I, I mean, I love peonies, but it is a real love-hate relationship because obviously we get, demands for peonies from people in September and you know it's um it's not going to happen so when when it is peony season we do we fully embrace it because it's short it's a fleeting season they are a big dramatic blousy flower that is incredibly difficult to get open when you want it it's to be so open is. yeah and doesn't last particularly long. Well, some varieties do, but doesn't last particularly long when they are open either. So why we bother, I have no idea. Yeah. But, <laughs> but they are so romantic and mm. alluring and just glorious yeah. when they're here. Apparently, um, when the Brits were surveyed, which was their favourite flower, it was actually a cornflower. And when the Americans were, it was a peony. And I feel that, is, that explains quite a lot of the difference between <laughs> us in a way. But yeah. anyway, I, I quite like that. But no, of course, I mean, peonies are incredible. And I think the one you use is that that coral one, isn't it, mainly? It's coral charm. Yeah. 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 And that actually, of all of them, that is a more long-lasting one because it really holds, it opens and then really holds its shape and its petals mm. for, for a good, sometimes two weeks, actually. But it... What it does is it fades from so the one in the book actually is probably is one that's been open for a while because yes, it's faded it's beautifully. Faded. Yeah, hasn't it? Yeah. And I'm just going to interrupt with a tip because for those of you yeah. who don't know it, and I'm sure you will do it if you've listened to the podcast, but the way to make peonies last as long as possible is actually to float them in the sink for four hours minimum, even eight hours. So overnight you just chuck them in the bath or the sink. And uh, they've got such a complex structure that they absorb water over their whole petal surface. And both peonies and hydrangeas, that really transforms their vase life. So just little interjection from the scientists you know, here. <laughs> I knew that about hydrangeas, but I did not know that about peonies. Yeah, yeah it really so, works, actually. Thank you, Sarah. Not at all. So before we say goodbye to you, the thing that just made my heart completely sing was when I turned to the summer pages because we've only talked about the spring pages of the book and you show and talk about doing a mandala and I think that's how you pronounce it but I, I feel it epitomizes everything about you and the book it's <laughs> unbelievably beautiful and I just need to explain what this is it's basically as a, a fantastic cartwheel flat lay so in the book Anna has this a white painted floor and on it she lays out forage from the garden and so you just have four or five flowers of each thing or some maybe a hundred petals of a dried rose or whatever but they're done in this incredible cartwheel arrangement and the the reason it sort of epitomizes everything about the book is what you say at the end I was thinking oh I could do that with my grandchildren. It'd be so lovely and we could have it <laughs> lasting the whole week on a table. 
But what you say very categorically, which I think in a way is so romantic, is you have to sweep it away as soon as you've done it. Yeah. So the whole point <laughs> is either the wind takes it away or, but you know, I used to do that with shells on a beach and I would spend all day not doing sandcastles, but I didn't know uh, they were called a mandala, but, and I would make these sort of patterns and it's just the most lovely engaging with nature, mindful thing about creating beauty for no reason other than creating beauty. And for me, it just, <laughs> it reminded me of kind of that childhood freedom of taking time to do something for no reason other than doing it. And I just think that is so liberating and I just love it. So will you talk about how you got into, because I've never seen this in any floristry book ever, Anna, and it's so original. Well, that's because it serves no purpose, really, other than yeah. the making process. I mean, you you know, it's not a product. It's not a a lasting thing, as as, as you said. I and mean, you said so beautifully. I, like you, have been making them since I was a child, but with, without calling them, well, without calling them anything, really. Just yes. curiosity, play, making. I remember making sort of nests in the garden which were which would be you know would have shapes and would be constructed out of grass cuttings yes. and leaves yeah. around the outside and layers of this and layers of that and then just kicking it away afterwards yeah. after I'd made it and and just the beauty of just touch senses yeah what you can collect what you can find but i think this for me one of my favourite scents that creates such a connection with the garden and with nature is the smell of stems of flowers. Yes. So I'm, quite often people talk about the actual floral scent of the, the flower itself, whereas I, I really connect to the smell of a stem mm. when you cut it or when you, when you rub the leaves or the foliage. Or, and I think that comes from that real tactile just playing with with what what's in the garden and um that was the idea behind the mandala in the book yeah is that it's just a, a mindful process yeah. of creating patterns and I think repeating patterns, patterns yeah. does that it's part of the reason why I love making wreaths so much is because you're just going you know round and round and you can lose your mind in it yes which you know yeah. it quiet quietens the mind the incessant chatter yes that we all have well, like a puzzle I presume we all have <laughs> yeah 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 well I would say let 2023 be the year for the mandala is is, is um, yeah um, and uh you know not some flashy flare arrangement but I'm certainly going to be doing these a lot and um Unlike you, I'm going to hope that they will last for a garden opening or something so that I can do yeah. the night before and that um, our guests and visitors can, can see them at least through the day before they... So, uh, But you do actually say quite practically, don't put them in a very windy spot and, and that's the yeah. thing. Think, I know, find, that's it, isn't find it? Find them somewhere <laughs> sheltered. Anna, thank you so much for joining me again. It was so lovely to chat to you and I really think that the Flower Philosophy is, is just a... a a truly lovely beautiful book and yeah just thanks thanks for the chat 
Thank you so much for having me and for yeah your kind words about it. I'm super excited for it to get into people's homes and hands. Thanks very much for listening to me and Anna Potter chatting away about flowers and flower philosophy and her new book. And next week, we are back at Perch Hill and I'm going to be chatting to Josie Lewis, our head gardener. And at this time of year, it's something when we're discussing what trials we're going to do, what experiments. And one of the things we're both passionately interested in is organic gardening and how to do it successfully. And so we're going to talk next week about plant relationships, what you can plant that helps out other plants and what plant teas you can make to spray onto plants so that you never need to use chemicals and how you can basically make a garden that encourages biodiversity and the life of the insects you want rather than the ones you don't. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com.